This week we're talking about photographing seascapes with Rick Salmon, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. So earlier today, I sat down with Rick Salmon. Rick is one of my favorite humans in general. He's just such a nice guy. He's got such a cool worldview, and he's pretty much just a walking photography tip machine. He's very knowledgeable when it comes to photography, but in this conversation, we kind of just let the conversation go where it decided to go, and we ended up talking about a whole bunch of stuff. We ended up talking about some kind of self-help motivational, inspirational type stuff, not really stuff that we ever talk about on the show. But regardless, I think that there was some good content in there. And hopefully some of you guys will find this conversation interesting. Forgive us if this is not the most focused conversation we've ever had. We intended on talking mostly about seascapes and and his new Oregon Coast book, but we ended up straying into a whole bunch of other stuff. And that's just kind of the way my conversations go with Rick. So view this as kind of a window into what Nick and Rick talk about when they get together. We talk about all kinds of stuff. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. This conversation will go up both on this feed, the landscape photography feed, as well as his podcast, which is called Picturing Success. So let's jump into the conversation that I had earlier today with the one and the only, the godfather, Rick Salmon. So I am sitting down with the godfather himself, <laughs> Mr. Rick Salmon, and it's always fun to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. And I guess I'm technically on your show right now as well. So this is fun. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. You're definitely one of the, you know, I can't believe how many followers you have with the amazing work you're doing. Uh, you're just an inspiration. You know, I wish I, how old are you? Uh, 22? No. 22. <laughs> I think I'm, I think I'm 39, give or take a year. Well, I'm uh, somewhere in there. Well, I'm 70 next year and I wish I had your energy and enthusiasm when I was your age. Uh, you're doing an amazing job. So it's an honor to be uh, chatting with you on both our shows. You say you wish you had my energy, but when I hang out with you, I feel like you have more energy than me, Rick. Well, <laughs> because... well now I have a lot of energy. You know, old people don't need a lot of sleep. <laughs> but, when, but when I was around 40, I didn't have this much energy because seriously, I wasn't doing what I love doing. I worked in the advertising business and for, you know, five days a week, I took the train from Croton on Hudson to New York City. I wore a three-piece suit. You probably can't imagine this, right? <laughs> no, I cannot imagine Rick Salmon in a three-piece suit. Right. For 10 years, I did it. I headed up the uh, Minolta account, and uh, but I didn't want to do it anymore. So I got out and now I'm doing this and now I have a lot of energy. And it's amazing how, how different life feels when you are spending the majority of your time doing something something that you love and what you're passionate about. And I always feel sorry for people that live in cities where they have like an hour and a half commute before and after work. And you spend so such a large portion of your life just sitting 
on a commute of some kind. Well, I guess that's what our podcasts are kind of for, for those poor souls <laughs> that have to spend so much of their time in a commute or doing something that they don't love. But you know what? We are definitely in control of our own reality. I believe that. You know, when I was working at the agency, I read this book called Real Magic by Dr. Wayne Dyer. Did you ever read it? Are you a follower of a doctor? I, I have not, but I'm, my curiosity has peaked. <laughs> well, what Dr. Wayne Dyer, who died a few years ago, he's a self-help guru. And this book uh, is called Real Magic. And basically, the, uh, the idea of the whole book is that we create our own reality. And if we start living the life we want to live, which I did when I was at the agency, I wanted to be a travel photographer. So I started traveling around. If we believe in ourselves and start living the life we want to live, that becomes your life. I mean, if it worked for me, I think it could work for anyone. So I definitely believe that we are uh, in control of our destiny. To a point. Now, if you work at General Motors and they close a plant, right? You're not, yeah. and you're out of a job. You're not in control. And then you keep going to work. You're probably still not <laughs> going to get paid, right? Right. You're still not going to get paid. But uh, don't you think that believing in yourself, like I, I'm sure you have a strong ego, and there's a difference between people who have a big ego and a strong ego. You know, big ego people. You know, they they brag, oh, I got a million followers on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. But people with a strong ego, like yourself and Art Wolf and the other photographers that we know they believe in themselves and i think we have to have we have to believe in ourselves to do a good job of what yeah. we do for me like i i'm going to do what i'm going to do and whether other people appreciate it or not that's kind of like a, a side effect you know the thing that i care the most about is just doing something that i'm proud of like you know when i was working my nine to five job a lot of times i would try to find pride in my in my day-to-day -day work but as soon as i stopped feeling passionate about that work that I was doing or like, you know, something happens with the people that work over me or whatever. It just took all of the purpose out of what I did. And that's really the, the beauty of, of working for yourself. And I think that's why people that once they are self-employed, they never go back is that you get to not only reap the, the fruits and the benefits of the hard work that you put in, but you can kind of change your direction, you know, like whatever you're doing that day, you're passionate about and you're trying really hard at. For me, like just pouring my obsession and my passion into something that I, I also reap the, the fruits and the benefits of, it gives my my day-to-day -day life purpose. And that's all you can ask from life is just to feel like you have some kind of purpose because yeah. nothing is worse when it feels like you have no purpose. Right. I think uh, you're a very purpose-driven person, very goal-oriented person. I feel I'm the same way. And uh, I think everybody should work for themselves. You know, it's funny, Susan, my wife will tell you, we go into a restaurant. If the, someone comes up to us and asks us a question you know, in a nice way, I always say, is this a family business? Like you could tell, right? Because mm -hmm. if it's your business, you're really proud of it. And uh, I really encourage people to, you know, if possible, work for yourself. Now, you know, you, you, you publish these amazing pictures, you know, on the web and uh, in your presentations. We saw the presentation you gave out uh, at my workshop, uh, Making Images with Impact. Was that the exact title? Yeah. Or something yeah, like that. Images with Impact. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you go out there and you do this and, you know, you're, you're an inspiration to, to a lot of people. But I think if we believe in ourselves again and have a purpose, we'll be much better off uh, than uh, doing something that we don't really like. Because you know yeah. what? You know, life is short. Not only is it sh really short sometimes, but it can change in a heartbeat. 
I'm always kind of operating under the assumption that, you know, these good times right now are not going to last forever. And I, I just want to enjoy it, ride the ride while it lasts, because I know that someday I'm, maybe my back gets bad again or I blow out a knee or something. And suddenly all of these workshops and all this travel and stuff that I'm doing is not going to be possible in my life anymore. So I might as well enjoy it while I can because it's temporary. Everything in life is temporary. You know, it's constantly changing. And that that's true no matter what kind of life you lead. So the best advice, it's funny that we're getting all self-helpy on this episode, but it's true. The, the, the best advice that you can give anybody, regardless of circumstance, is just try to appreciate how things are rather than constantly obsessing f- about how they used to be or how you wish that they were. And you have to change, right? Yeah. You have to adapt and change and just try to, man, it's so funny that we're going all self-help. No, but, but I, I think uh, this is so important because, you know, it people is. listen to all these podcasts, they talk about F-stops and shutter speeds, and we're going to talk about processing and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, just getting back to this for one second, you know, there's a great quote, when you're through changing, you're through. So it sounds kind of funny, but, you know, we have to keep evolving. You have to keep up with uh, with all this stuff, uh, what's going on. And again, if, if you don't keep changing, if you don't believe in yourself, if you don't watch what other young photographers or <laughs> younger photographers are doing, you are going to be through. But get one more thing about you that you were saying before about, uh, you know, someday it might be over. Now, here's how I look at being a freelancer. You're a freelancer, right? Mm-hmm. You do a lot of different things. I'm a freelancer. I do a lot of different things. So people say, what's it like, Rick, being a freelancer? This is what I say. And this ties into, you know, your, what was your other job, by the way? You said you had a night. I was a golf course greenskeeper. Oh man, there's a nice random. (laughs) We have to, we we have to play golf. uh, Absolutely. My handicap this year is down to a five. I'm I'm pretty pretty happy with that. It's the lowest it's ever been. But anyway, okay, I'm across. going off on another tangent. I took a, like a hundred golf lessons. Right, this was the best like, advice I ever got. So the instructor says, slow down. Now, don't you think that's good advice for a photographer to slow down? Oh, absolutely. That's well. That's one of the biggest benefits of you know things like shooting on a tripod is that it actually slows you down. It forces you to slow down, and you become more thoughtful about. Things like composition, what settings am I using, ed- edge patrol, checking the the edges of your frame to make sure you're not including distractions into the shot. Slowing down is one of the, the, the things that a lot of professional photographers do that a lot of less, you know, less advanced photographers don't do is that they they work really slow and and very methodical and it helps every time did you ever use a view camera no i've never even shot film right (laughs) well i started with the four by five uh linhoff view camera on a tripod it's my father this is a work of art right they they had a a wide angle lens that went on the view camera that actually had a bellows in it this is how fine this is how you could fine tune anyway with the view camera you see the picture upside down and backward and this is really a good way to think about composition and balance in a photograph. When you're looking at the picture upside down and backward, you know, under a, a black cloth, it's really slowing you down. Uh, so I was thinking that this would be great for like camera manufacturers, and I'm serious, to put a feature in our mirrorless cameras or our, our digital SLRs where mm-hmm. you could see the picture upside down and backward because it's, that's, that's what Ansel Adams, that's what he was looking at all the time. You know, I just got done teaching with Erin Bobnick, and one of the things that she recommends people do during the post-processing process is that they not only look at a a thumbnail of the shot, because it kind of gives you an overall sense of balance in the image and and whatnot, but also invert it, 
look at it upside down, look at it different ways. And then you start, you start to detach the subject matter from just the overall balance and shape and symmetry of the shot. I think it comes a bit back to exactly what you're talking about, where it kind of, when you, your view is slightly disorienting, you start just looking at overall shapes and, and tones and patterns and stuff. And you start to uh, have a better feel for the composition and the overall balance of a shot. Absolutely. Hey, listen, before Alex Morley <laughs> tunes off, you know, he, Alex is a great photographer, right? Alex uh, is awesome. Alex is awesome. He co-leads the uh, Oregon coast, uh, uh, photo caravan with me uh he was he's with me every time i go out there he inspires me to get make great pictures out there but uh i know he wants to hear a lot of landscape photography tips but just backing up a little before i got off on my 11th tangent <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so sorry but anyway people ask me what it's like to be a freelancer and this is what i say because they think it's great right they see me and you you're like in death valley you're in the oregon coast you're in china you're everywhere and i go a few places so people say, what's it like being a freelancer? I say, well, being a freelancer is like, this is what it's like. It's like being on a roller coaster. The highs are really high and the lows are really low. However, mm -hmm. it's much better than being on a merry-go-round, merry which I was at the advertising agent. Oh, that is so true. Right? That is so true. One of the things that I like about, it's funny, this is starting to, it's becoming like the self-employed episode, but um, one of the things I enjoy about working for myself is that not only are you in control of over your day and stuff, but you're also in control over your direction. You know, yes. when you work for somebody else, you are in zero control over what the next four years are going to look like for you. But when you're self-employed, you can kind of get that game plan where, you know, maybe things are not exactly how you want them to be currently but in a couple years you have kind of an arc for your business where you're transitioning into something else because it's boring or whatever so like and you probably get this a little bit with you know the amount of workshops that you've done in the past rick but i it's really easy to get stuck in a rut for for workshops because you know you have those five go-to locations that people know you from know you shoot and yep. you have that strong portfolio of and it's really easy to do just the same thing every year and that but the problem becomes is that you don't allow yourself enough uh scouting time to go you know expand that portfolio into new places that you might want to teach at and so it's easy to get stuck in that rut of doing the same thing at the same time every year. You know, Nick does a, a fall Oregon coast workshop every single year. And for me personally, I'm trying to transition into like, you know, expanding that offering a little bit into new locations. That way, you know, some of the people that are kind of re recurring clients for me, I can take them somewhere new in the future. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I always say go to new places or go back to the same place. Like we live, we live about five minutes from the new Croton Dam. If you ever come to Croton on Hudson with your son, please stay at our house. This is the largest man-made uh, stone structure in the United States. <clears throat> the water, water coming over there, especially at this time of year in the spring is beautiful. So I go there, you know, maybe once a week and I say, I'm not going to come back with the same picture. And if I come back with the same picture, I'm going to process it totally differently. So I think one way to get good at uh, at photography is going back to the same place true. and try to get something different. We, Susan and I were on a workshop. We did a, a workshop out to uh, Yosemite and we were carpooling. So someone calls me up and she's very unhappy. She says, I'm not getting the iconic shots. I said, great. <laughs> 
Because those iconic shots, guess what? They've already been done like by a million people. You don't need those iconic shots. Well, I think it's good to get them. Hey, you know what? I have a lot of books, so maybe we could do a book together. You know, (laughs) Nick and Rick's uh, complete guide to getting iconic shots. We tell people how to get the same old shots that everyone's got. Just go to the tripod marks of the the previous photographer. Right. (laughs) That's the thing is, you know, especially places like Yosemite or Mesa Arch, you know, there's those places where there's only a few ways of shooting a particular viewpoint or whatever. And those oftentimes for me personally always become they're the least fulfilling because I feel like all I am trying to do is one up the guy that shot it just before me. Like I'll either have to process it better, get better conditions, but really all that's going to change is like the post-processing and the weather conditions because the viewpoint doesn't change. And for me, like as I grow as a photographer, my favorite places are those places that, you know, maybe I'm, I'm in a forest or I'm shooting more telephoto and it feels like no matter what I do, I'm going to come away with a different shot than most people just because of the you know of the place that you're at it's a more of an abstract kind of thing as i get a little bit older i start loving the abstract a bit more because i'm trying so hard to find my own photos because i want to be you know i I want to create an, an original piece of art not just like a you know slightly better than that guy's piece of art right so i'm I really love trying to find those places where it forces you into shooting something new and original. Well, speaking of that, you know, Art Wolf, you know, Art Wolf, you know, yes. one, of, one of another one of my photography heroes. He, he does a lot on abstracts. He has a day long seminar where like the whole afternoon is about finding art in these unusual places. And, and your comment that you just made a couple of minutes ago about you like going into a forest during my workshop where you gave that awesome presentation, making images with uh, impact. You showed a picture uh, that you took in a forest, and I think you said something like, see, I, I wasn't asleep in the back row. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I think you said something like, if you could take a picture in a forest, you know, th- you're a good photographer because this is such a cluttered environment, right? We have to cut mm-hmm. the clutter. So do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because yeah, it I was mean, an amazing forest picture. I feel like the harder I have to work for a photo, the the more sentimentally attached I am to it. Photographing in a forest scene or in a woodland scene, it is the most challenging scenario just because there is so much you can shoot in any direction and it's just absolute chaos. But when you're finally able to uh, eliminate all the things that don't add to the the beauty of, of the particular scene that you're in and you're able to boil it down to its most simple ingredients... There's just something so rewarding about coming away with a good photo from a very difficult shooting scenario. There's places along the Oregon coast that I like to go to that are just these beautiful hiking trails and they're completely different in different types of light. But sometimes when you get that that backlight with a little bit of coastal fog or something, it just makes for amazing, beautiful conditions. And when you can find those little vignettes of nature, you know, shoot telephoto and find that little vignette with that beautiful light. Some of my favorite photos that I've taken, they might not be my most successful on social media, but who cares? For me, those are my favorites because I know that the likelihood of somebody else ever even taking that photo in the first place is very, very low just because of where you were at and the difficulty of getting it. Well, you showed a lot of pictures in that presentation and you have, uh, you have two awesome pictures in our New Oregon Coast book, but that picture that you took in the forest uh, really stood out. <clears throat> and I think one thing that you mentioned, you said you have to like, you know, uh, not include, you know, a lot of the, the crap, <laughs> basically the crap. Yeah. The thing is this, you know, painting, 
painting is additive, right? They, the artists, the painters would stay in the forest, sit in the forest, stand in the forest, sit in the forest, whatever, with the canvas and would add to the canvas. What we have to do as photographers, right? We have, we have to subtract. So painting is additive yes. and photography is subtractive, right? Absolutely. Like when I go to a, especially a scene like that, I try to, I sit there and I have a conversation with myself where I'm like, okay, why am I here? Like, why do I want to take a photo here? And then I'm like, okay, well, I like the light. I like the atmosphere. I like these particular trees. I like some of the ferns. I try to include a photo that has only those things that I would tell the story about. So if I was to walk into this particular scene and, and then go home and tell a story about, oh, I was in this beautiful forest. With, I think about the things that I would include in that story and then try to exclude everything else. Because, right. you know, some of the dead foliage on the trail probably wouldn't make it into the shot. The big open areas of sky probably would not make it into the story. You know, and I include those things that would make it into my recounting of the of the scene and exclude everything that I would leave out. So you're trying to reduce the contrast range. You said when you're not including the sky and, and boring stuff like the path. Yeah, exactly. Before we get into uh, some processing, because I'd love to talk to you about your processing. I mean, you get most of these things like right in camera, but I also can tell uh, that you did some very artistic uh, enhancements to your pictures. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Ansel Adams spent a lot of time, right? Months, sometimes years, you know, working on one picture, right? Like Moon Moonrise Over Hernandez, right? I'm teaching a, a seminar with uh, John Sexton, and he has a great Ansel Adams story. This is back in the 70s before computers. There's a guy in the East Coast who writes Ansel Adams, a letter on the West Coast when John Sexton was there. So Ansel Adams opens the letter and the guy's really mad at Ansel Adams. He says, Dear Mr. Adams, I have your two books, The Print and the Negative, which by the way, I still recommend. You inspired me to go to Yosemite. And when I got there, it didn't look like that. So, oh, that's so, funny. <laughs> so it's funny, right? Because mm -hmm. it doesn't look like that, right? He used his creative vision. He used creative visualization. He used, you know, back then he used the equivalent of HDR to make these incredibly dynamic black and white pictures. But I think a lot of places, you know, don't look like the way we envision them. And I think that's fine, right? Yeah, if you're absolutely. honest about it. The whole process of post-processing for me is to try to inject some of how it felt to be there back into the photo. You know, raw files are super flat and they're, they don't convey how it felt at all to be at a particular location because that's not even how we experience it. When we go to a location, our brain is filtering things out, making the warm sunlight look warmer to our eyes because it feels warm. It's making the shadows look cold. We experience a place so differently than a camera sees it. So for me, I'm trying to always inject some of of how it felt back into the photo through post-processing. And a lot of times I'm not the type of person to add things that weren't there, but I am always trying to milk out the most of a particular file and get it back to how I felt it or how I remember it or, you know, how I experienced it in my, in my own fantasy brain. That's, that's what post-processing is for me is trying to inject some of how it felt back into the photo. Well, that's, a, that's the main thing with any photograph. Same thing with music, right? It's the mood, it's the feeling, it's the, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's the emotion, right? That, yeah. uh, that the, uh, 
that the piece conveys. So in our book here, uh, you have a picture. I'm looking at the forward that you wrote, and thank you so much again. You have one picture of uh, the waves crashing. I mean, these are the biggest wave, uh, waves I've ever seen on the Oregon coast crashing. I think it's by Abandon? Yeah, it's kind of by Abandon. It's, it's near Shore Acres. Oh, right. Okay. That's right. It's definitely closer to uh, Shore Acres. But you have a, a vertical picture. I'm trying to describe this to our listeners. Uh, it's a beautiful vertical picture with some rocks and some uh, trees, looks like some some evergreen trees, but the waves are like, you know, crashing and you have mist and a beautiful sky. To me, this picture looks like a painting, which right. I hope you take as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because when if you think about the type of painting that you would paint, you know, like everybody is different about what type of painting that they would paint if they had the talent. For me, I would be painting things that include some of that dramatic light and that sense of moment and like it's a special time to be at that particular spot. For my seascapes and a lot of that type of photography, those are always my favorite shots. The ones that have that sense of it's a special time to be there, whether it's because of dramatic weather, because it's maybe a particular splash of the water. Uh, I'm always Always trying to have that sense of moment in my photos and I think that's the same type of stuff that I would end up painting is something that makes the the moment feel special like it's a special time to be there well this picture is uh, very very uh, special and uh, and you're a very special guy so I'm glad <laughs> that we have you on our podcast I'm glad we're doing this uh, together so I know Alex wants some specific Alex probably <laughs> wants some, some specific tips so uh, do you want to start do you want me to give one or what yeah, absolutely. So obviously, we've kind of alluded to this book, but Rick, you're just coming out with your your Oregon Coast Road Trip book, right? Yes, and uh, Susan Salmon is the co-author, so I have the digital SLR and mirrorless pictures in there, and Susan has a, a whole section on her iPhone pictures with her apps, and uh, you know she's so good. Yeah, we had a ton of fun doing the book. Uh, we were on the Oregon coast, I think, about five times, and uh, it's more than just a photography book. It's a guidebook, like where to stay, where to eat, where to have fun, where to shoot, and we give the drive times and everything. And uh, we have we have another book. The first uh, travel book we did was on Route sixty six. So that was the first one, and the publisher liked it. So uh, our Oregon trip book uh, was a ton of fun to produce. Really, a ton of fun. We, we had a lot of fun. And I think that fun's going to come through because, you know, my feeling is that if you're not having fun, you're doing something wrong. And you guys were kind enough to ask me to write the foreword, which is pretty cool. That's the, probably the first time that Nick Page has ever, <laughs> ever made it into a book of any kind because writing, not my forte, but it was pretty cool to have a small part in it. So that was, that was cool. Thank you, Rick. Well, well, we, we really thank you. You have so many amazing pictures when you want to do a book. You know, I say, you know, YouTube videos are great and, uh, and podcasts are great and all this stuff is great, but there's nothing like a book as a calling card. I mean, I, I send our books around if, uh, if I want to work on a project. You know, I could send people a link to my ebooks and things like that. But having a book, having a book or something solid, people still like that. It's so nice as the, as the author or even if we're just talking like just a photo book of memories. That's one of the things that I want to try to start doing more of with my own travels is to actually do a nice, nice looking photo book just for just for my own keepsake of all of my different trips. That way I have it in that form. And when people come over and they start asking about my trips to Iceland or whatever, I can just hand them a book and they can flip through and see all the different images I've captured and, and include some of the behind the scenes stuff. I think that's just a it's a cool 
it's a cool thing that people are not doing enough of because, you know, we spend so much money going on these big elaborate trips and then we don't have much of a physical thing to even show for it, except for maybe a couple prints on the wall or something. So having like that, that physical book to, of all of your different major trips throughout your life, I think would be really cool. Absolutely. Do you print a lot? Uh, not as much as I wish I did. <laughs> yeah. I'm just getting back into that. And, uh, you know, People uh, don't realize that back, uh, <laughs> back in the, uh, what was it? Back in, I guess, 2000, what really drove this whole digital uh, revolution was the inkjet printer because it put the control from start to finish back in our hands. So people were like making prints all the time. Now people, you know, they send their pictures to MPix or, uh, or uh, Bay Photo or Adorama Pix or wherever, right? But I, you know, I, we, we were just down on in Florida at an event and I, we had these horses running on the beach at sunrise. Amazing. And the pictures were nice. But when I saw, when I saw that print come out of the printer, I said, wow, this is really cool. You know, I used to print, I used to print, my father got me into a black and white printing in our basement and uh, we would make the prints and then my mother would hand color them. I mean, <laughs> oh, that's cool. Oh, it was cool. People don't know how lucky they are today. Right. I mean, I, I look at your pictures. I'm looking at the pictures in your forward here. And, you know, you have super bright water, which isn't blown out. And you have uh, dramatic shadows that you could see into. You can never in a million years get that with slide film. You so might true. Be, you might be able to get it with a color negative film because it was more forgiving. So we have a whole bunch of questions and maybe we'll go through a, for a few of them. Uh, one that is definitely a repeating question anytime you talk about this subject is, what do you do to protect your camera or do you do anything? I'll be interested to know what you do, Rick. Do you do anything special to protect your camera? Well, I have one of those uh, $2 plastic bags. <laughs> you know, I, you, yep. you, could, you could go on the web and you could buy like a $200, you know, uh, a waterproof camera cover that you could put your hands inside and control all the dials and the buttons and all this stuff or the touch the screen but i just have one of those i think it's optech or yeah yeah that that's what i use so protecting your camera is very important i always have uh, a, a lint for uh, you know lint-free cloth with me right one of those microfiber mm -hmm. cloths like you said you were up in iceland right and yeah. it's so windy there if you're photographing some of these waterfalls you have to you know have a <laughs> you got to focus and clean your lens have your hand over the lens and then take your hand away from the lens and in a split second <laughs> you know it might be covered with uh, mist again right yeah so so I, I protect my camera and i protect my uh, and i keep wiping the lens i think that's very important but also when i'm photographing by the water i'm thinking about my tripod uh you know to get as you know to get the steadiest shot with the tripod you want to unscrew or un unlatch the fat legs the thick legs first however when you're photographing uh in the sand right like on the beach on the oregon coast you want to undo the thin legs first because if you undo the fat legs first and put them in the sand that joint between the thinnest leg and the next one's going to be in the sand and when the when the tide comes in you're going to get a lot of sand in there and i'm sure you've seen it right this happened nick and then oh, people, yes. people take their tripod apart and they can't get it back together i talk about it on every workshop but there's always one or two people that i don't talk 
talk to soon enough and they've just, you know, jammed their threads down into the sand and then they get to experience the the joy that is taking apart your tripod while on the road and trying to clean out those threads. <laughs> you know, as far as protection for me, I don't do it often enough. I always, I have those same Optech camera covers in my bag, but I seldom pull them out because I'm always like, oh, I won't get wet. And then I get wet and there's nothing more corrosive than uh, seawater because all of that salt, it just gets in every crevice. And then, you know, a week later, every little tiny screw is just covered in corrosion. Then I have to go in with a toothbrush and try to scrub all of that stuff off. So, <laughs> so let, let this be a lesson. Covering your camera is not a bad thing. It's just kind of a cumbersome thing. And if you think you're in a situation where you're going to get splashed, it's important. Also, you know, talking about keeping the front element clean, I use those Chemtech scientific wipes. Have you ever oh, heard yeah. of those? Yes, right? yes. And what I like about them is that they're lint-free, like a lens cloth, but they're also very super absorbent. So rather than uh, some lens cloths will just push the water across the element and you just kind of smear it around. These will actually just, you know, suck up the beads of water and then you don't end up with as much water floating around on there. That's a cool tip. Another one is uh, I'm wondering if you guys change your shutter speed based on the speed of the waves. I have a, I have a t-shirt made up, you know, I'm sure. Do you have Nick Page uh, t-shirts? I well, don't. I have a Rick Salmon t-shirt. It just has my logo on it. But I'm going to have new shirts made up, which is going to answer that question. And the answer, <laughs> what the new t-shirt's going to say is, it depends, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So do I change my shutter speed depending on the speed of water? Uh, well, a couple of things. We have to remember that everything looks good on the small screen, right? So yeah. if we're photographing the moving water, we might shoot at a quarter of a second and it and it we might think it looks good, but an eighth of a second, right? Or a, or a half a second or a minute, you know, this could look good too. So I think bracketing, not bracketing your exposure, but bracketing your um, your shutter speed is a very good idea when photographing water because by doing that, what you're going to do is get a different gesture in the water. And you're going to have the water coming in and you're going to have the water coming out. You know, in people photography and wildlife photography, gesture. Uh, Jay Maisel, do you know Jay at all or do you know of him? Um, I know of him, don't know him. Well, <laughs> he's a very interesting character, which is topic for a whole nother conversation but he talks about the importance of gesture in when photographing people and i talk about when photographing animals but it's the I, I, getting back to your your two shots you know that shot you have of the waves crashing you know you know about you know super high it's the gesture of the water in the other picture the vertical i described with the rocks and the beautiful uh, curve of the water uh, angle of the water in the foreground it's the gesture so by changing your shutter speed you're going to get different gestures of the water and also actually getting back to alex morley he recommended this and i actually never thought of that he said set your camera on high frame rate when you're doing this yeah, absolutely. So that's a really good tip, right? You're going to get more gestures, just like yep. with a bald eagle flying around at 100 miles an hour. Yeah, for me, like the, the different shutter speeds convey a different sense of energy, right? right. So like if you have a really long, really slow exposure time, uh, you're going to get a very calm 
calm energy. And then as that shutter speed gets faster and faster and faster, it can starts to convey more and more energy. And then when you, some of my favorite wave photos are actually with a really fast shutter speed, you know, a thousandth of a second, because it's really freezing all of all of those water droplets, all of that energy in place. And then and it feels more frantic and, and energetic. Yeah. So a lot of it is like I stand there and I, I try to decide what kind of what kind of energy do I want to convey in this shot? Do I feel calm right now? Or do I feel like I'm about to die? <laughs> you know, and those are <laughs> right. two very different feelings. And oftentimes like my goal for the 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 feeling of the shot dictates what the sh- what shutter speed I'm gonna go for and like you said rick you know i never try to decide then and there while i'm shooting i always give myself options for later on because you know when you're looking at the baseball size rendition of your photo you can't really tell and you don't and you shouldn't really be taking tons of time at that point to tell because things are changing so shoot it in a bunch of different ways and then decide later when you're looking at it on your computer that's what i try to do yeah that was a very good question hey by the way how long does your podcast go um pretty i don't know I'm having a ton of fun. I think we could talk about this for quite a while. Let's take uh, two more questions and we'll call it good. Tom asks, not all coasts have nice rocky shore foregrounds. What do you do when you are just faced with a beach? A lot of East Coast people can relate with this problem. They just have big open sandy beaches, not necessarily the sea stacks that you might see in Oregon. So in that kind of situation, Rick, what would you do? Well, uh, we were just down in Florida where we had horses running on the flat beach. We got amazing pictures. So putting a, a model in there. I mean, these these horses were running at top speed through the through the water and we had the reflection i'll send you a picture and it was it's really cool but also you could have some fun we we were faced with the situation i was doing a workshop in miami and i was teaching slow shutter speeds so we went to one of the shell stores there we bought some conch shells and we put them and we had the waters you know coming in and swirling around the conch shells so this is a good way to practice so when you are fortunate enough to go on a nick page workshop on the oregon coast <laughs> you you'll be all set that's cool. Sometimes when I see those big empty beaches, you can do kind of like what you're talking about where you're creating your own foreground or creating that thing to kind of break the break the simplicity and the monotony of it. Uh, another th- way of doing it is just to embrace it. You know, so, some of the most beautiful images I've seen from, you know, seascapes are some of the most minimalistic. And what can be more minimalistic than just open sand and then an interesting sky above it and that water slowly transitioning between the two so you can kind of embrace the minimalism of that type of scene but another thing that you can do is start looking for sand patterns where you know maybe you're looking at wet wet sand and you look down and the way the the water has receded through the sands created all of these interesting patterns in the sand you throw a little contrast on a shot like that and they just come to life so that's another thing is just look for those small scenes yeah, I, I think that's a very, very good tip about uh, we were out on the Oregon coast and we were photographing the patterns with just maybe, you know, a blade or two of grass in them. Right. I mean, yeah. it, it looked beautiful. But getting back to your comment about, um, you know, taking a picture uh, that doesn't have a lot going on in it. Uh, there's a photographer, John Paul Capignegro, uh, an amazing photographer. Um, I follow his work all the time. I don't think I don't think there's a photographer on the Web who takes uh, pictures that don't don't have a lot going on in them which are but they're so they're so simple it just might be like you said it might be just you know 
uh, a horizon line and some sky and some water. They're very, very soothing pictures. <laughs> you know, you were talking about the energy with the waves crashing. His pictures are very, very soothing. So mm -hmm. I, I would recommend uh, it's John Paul, C-A-P-O-N-I-G-R-O dot com. So uh, this will be the last question. My buddy, Gavin Hardcastle, you might know him from Photo Tripper website and YouTuber, and his, he's probably one of the most hilarious guys I know. He asks, uh, how many lens combinations has Rick killed or drowned by getting hit by waves? He photographed quite a few seascapes. How yeah. many cameras have you killed? Uh, none. Really? None. We were in Iceland, and uh, if people want to have a, a fun read, you could type in uh, Rick Salmon, really right stuff, tripod survives the icy rapids. So what was going on <laughs> is I have a re the really right stuff tripod with the four legs that I'm 6'2", it goes over my head, right? Oh, and yeah. So I'm using this uh, with the flip-out screen on my camera because I wanted to shoot down into this uh, one waterfall. It's a, it's a little tiny waterfall before you get to the Glacier Lagoon on the left-hand side of the road oh yeah it's really a beautiful waterfall anyway someone wanted to borrow my tripod because he had a short tripod so i take my camera off and as soon as i take my camera off the tripod not following my own advice i wasn't holding on to my tripod so in this waterfall there's that has these icy rapids in it the wind came up and blew my really right stuff <laughs> tripod into the rapids now fortunately because it's air sealed uh it's floating upside down the legs are sticking out right and the ball head smashing on the ground <laughs> on the bottom of the rocks and it's, it's going down and Susan said, my wife is saying, don't jump in. Well, we were getting ready to go to the Glacier Lagoon. So I really wanted, I really wanted to have my tripod. So I'm running down the, the side of the rapids. And there's this young kid from Finland, about 28 years old. He said, what's going on? I said, my tripod's in the water. He runs back to his car. He gets his uh, waders and he goes in and rescues my tripod. And I'm still nice. using that same really right stuff tripod today. It definitely survived the icy rapids. So, uh, uh, the tip is don't take your hand off of your tripod, especially, right, Nick, if you're in Iceland, because it can be very windy. Oh, yeah, for sure. It was thoroughly cleaned from glacial runoff water. Nice and clean now. So yes. they got that going for you. A <laughs> couple extra dings maybe on the ball head, but other than that, it's all right. Well, now it has personality, like Willie Nelson's guitar, you know, has a hole in the top of it because he played it so much. Awesome. So Rick, where can people find your book and where can they find more information about all the stuff that you're up to? Well, thank you. It's uh, just ricksalmon.com. Everything's up there. And how about you? Uh, nickpagephotography.com. So, and I, you want to talk, talk a little bit about your YouTube channel? Yeah. So uh, if those that don't already know, I've got a YouTube channel and I post, you know, behind the scenes vlogs of my adventures and the occasional tutorial or gear review. I've got quite a bit of stuff up there. Going to be heading to Scotland next week and I'm looking forward to recording some YouTube content with the guys. I'm going to be hanging out with Thomas Heaton and Gavin Hardcastle and Adam Gibbs and that's going to be fun. It's always hilarious hanging out with those guys especially in scotland as it turns out rick a little side note i don't know why but they started calling me lord page over on the master photography podcast they refer to me as lord page it's and weird. i guess and uh as a joke annalise found a place where you can actually buy a one foot plot of, of one foot by one foot plot of land in the in a scottish 
in this, you know, some kind of Scottish uh, uh, nature preserve. As a result, you you become a, an official Scottish lord because you're a landowner. So I am officially Lord oh, Nicholas Page. I'm a Scottish landowner, and I get to go see my plot of land. I was thinking about putting a little figurine of myself on my land. That way, I can <laughs> have a, a little mini Nick overseeing you know, his land in Scotland. I think the Lord, that's better than like Sir Paul McCartney, right? I mean, right, a yeah. Lord, that's, that's I am cool. I Lord Page, you Lord Nicholas Page. Game of Thrones is over now, <laughs> but too bad <laughs> they didn't know about you. You know, you'd be perfect in there. You, you got the good rugged look, you know, and everything. Yeah, I, I would be a good wildling, I think. <laughs> oh, you. <laughs> well, listen, Nick, it is always fun hanging out with you, always fun uh, speaking with you. And uh, maybe we can come back uh, sometime and we could do a whole thing, a uh, whole self help thing, because I think this is so important. Uh, people really need encouragement, they need motivation, they need inspiration. And I, I think this is kind of a window into what Rick and I actually talk about when we hang out together. We're seldom talking about, you know, our top seascapes. We're usually talking <laughs> about self-help and, you know, the power of belief and all of that stuff. And that's what I like about you, Rick, is you have a cool way of looking at the world. I appreciate well, that about you. Well, uh, same with you, my friend. And, uh, you know, the first time I met you, you had your son there. And, uh, you know, family is the most important thing. And I saw the bond that you guys have. And, you know, he's the only son, only child, right? Yeah, well, same here. We have Marco. And uh, he's 27, a little older than your uh, young one there. But uh, he still calls us uh, every day, twice a day. He's getting his PhD in finance. But because we spent time with him uh, when he was young like you do, you know, that's the best investment, I think think uh, uh, you can make. And getting back to that strong ego that I was talking about, I think giving a, a person a strong sense of uh, self-esteem, you know, that you could do it. I think that is so important at any age. Totally agree. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Rick, for coming on. And I guess we'll talk to all of you guys next time. <laughs>